Hello, this is Ray Brooks. Hey, this is Big Lou. That's double L-O-U. Hi, I'm Veronica Jackson. Hey, everybody, this is Adam Gusso. I'm D. Chupar. Hey there, folks, this is Don Flynn of the American Songster, slapping the dap with Jack Dapper. Hi, this is Guy Davis. Hi, I'm Shamika Copeland. Hey, I'm Ben Turner of Piedmont Blues. I'm here with Valerie Turner. And we are bluesing with Lamont Jack Burley. Hi, I'm Larry Griffin, and I keep it locked and loaded on Jack Dapper Blues. Yes, yes, yes. a part of the Delta region that is rarely, if ever, discussed when referring to or teaching about African-American traditional music. On this episode of the Jack Dapper Blues Podcast, I speak with Michael L. Jones, Kentucky music historian, as he shares with us the long, deep, and important contributions of the music that has been cultivated in Kentucky. What's happening? What's happening? What's happening, blues people? You are now tuned into another episode of Jack Dapper Blues podcast and I have a very special and unique guest and I say unique because in the spectrum of African American traditional music in the spectrum of American music history this location is which should be always discussed usually isn't so we're going to break that mold right now with a special guest, Michael L. Jones, who is a Kentucky music historian. Sir, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm tired from my weekend. Uh, I had uh, we had the Jug Band Jubilee here in Louisville, and then uh, I curated an exhibit on Kentucky music that's uh, at the Fraser History Museum. It's called Celebrating the Sounds of Kentucky. Wow. Okay. So that, that's a lot to unpack right there. <laughs> I, um, so with that being said, as though I was thinking and start with the jug band, uh, maybe what we can do is start with the, 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 how you got on this journey and then we could break off into these different um, um, unique musics that spawned spawned out of Kentucky. How about that? Okay, that sounds good. Um, well, you know, I was raised by my grandparents, and all they listened to was blues and jazz um, and gospel music. And so, uh, when I was uh, younger, I got really into hip hop and punk rock and I started writing about music for the Leo Weekly which is the um, alternative weekly here in Louisville and uh, at, at some point I, started, I rediscovered the blues and I was doing a lot of reading and I, I was kind of disappointed that as a writer I felt like everything about the blues had already been written and uh, I didn't really know much about Kentucky's contribution to the blues. And one day I was looking at some import CDs from Austria and I came across one called uh, Clifford Hayes and the Jug Bands of Louisville. And not only was it Louisville, Kentucky, but all the musicians were black. Mm. And so I was like, how can I be into this type of music? be from the city and never heard of a jug band, let alone that they were black. You know, I always was taught that they were white mountain men, you know? Correct, correct. <laughs> and and uh, so uh, I ended up um, uh, right, finding the person who wrote the um, liner notes actually lived close to me, and she was the wife of a, a local historian, and that sort of set me on the journey, and I wrote an article called The Crazy Jug Band Sound back in 2000, and it kind of uh, went around the internet, 
And uh, I got a call from the History Press and they had been looking for someone to write a jug band book. And they said that they'd heard I was the expert. So just uh, from writing one article, I knew more than anybody else. And so my book came out in 2014. And since then, you know, I've been uh, going around talking and everything I got uh, invited uh, for a while I've been uh, volunteering for this um, uh, festival annual festival uh, called the National Jug Band Jubilee that happens every September because Louisville produced the first uh, jug bands to record and so we claim to be the home of jug band music, even though it was a Southern thing that, you know, was in um, black communities all over the South. Correct. But now let's stop there for a moment, because I do have a small knowledge of the popularity of jug music and jug bands in Kentucky. Let's let's talk about why Kentucky is pivotal to this um style of of African American traditional music expression and the things that came along with it. Could could you break that down for us? Sure. Um, Well, people, uh, they don't realize how really important Kentucky is in American history. In all those uh, old cowboy movies, when they're talking about going west, Kentucky was the beginning of the west. This is where Lewis and Clark started out and recruited their people. Mm. And Louisville specifically was important because we were the only, uh, we have the falls of the Ohio, which is the only block uh, blockage on the Ohio River between uh, Pittsburgh and where it meets up with the Mississippi. So uh, we were, you know, the reason this city was founded here by George Rogers Clark is they wanted to control the falls. And once the steamboat came, we were an important river town. We uh, we were one of the like twenty most important cities in the nineteenth century, and so and we had the largest free black community uh, west of Baltimore. Wow! And so we had all these people coming from all over, and uh, they were bringing their music to uh, to this place. You know, it was a real cosmopolitan city. And what happened after the Civil War was that um, all the Confederates, ex-Confederates, moved here. Uh, and kind of took over the city. And also a lot of uh, black people moved here looking for jobs and things. We're, uh, when people talk about the Great Migration, you know, you think of Chicago and Detroit and all that. But a lot of people came to Louisville, too. Mm, okay. Okay. And so, you know, uh, people like the boys and Frederick Douglass and stuff, they were coming to conventions here in the 19th century. So I'm happy you brought that up because one of the things within the last couple of years that I, I, I've been uh, highlighting was that throughout the many migrations, you have, you know, of course, the Northeast, um, the Midwest, and then you also have the West, and you have the the Oklahoma and the Seattle and this, that, and the third. But to your point, Kentucky has never been mentioned. One, you you know, it's been mentioned less than the the migration from the the Arizona area to California. But now you you made something, you made a mention of something that's just very interesting. You have. Confederate soldiers who are no longer soldiers. Well, well, yeah, the war's over. So, so they moved to Kentucky. Then you have this budding black community there, and 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 and, and African Americans moving there. How is the dynamic of these two communities meshing, or or did they somehow find a way to remain separate? Uh, the one thing about Kentucky is black people never always had the right to vote. So they had some kind of political power, mm. you know, but um, there are certain Southern cu- customs. People say Kentucky joined the Confederacy after they lost. 
that's the joke. We have like civil war memorials and stuff here, even though we had the union grant uh, was stationed here in Louisville. <laughs> you know, wow. we were a union outpost, but uh, all around the city, if you look around and what happened was these ex Confederates came here and they started building these memorials and, you know, that whole lost cause imagery. But right. we all, had some important black leaders here too but in the music it, it really uh changed some things in the culture because before the civil war you had a lot of interracial bands here really? the first black bands there was a lot of the germans were against slavery the first anti-slavery things were German, and we had a huge German population here, and the Germans and the blacks lived in the same neighborhoods. And so I, I discovered all these bands that were, you know, Germans and black musicians playing together, but that stops after the Civil War. And then you had two schools of musicians here in Louisville. You had the trained musicians uh, that played the big parties and you had the folk musicians and they kind of combined into the in the jug band. Louisville is different than other jug band music because of the there is a continuum of music in river towns. So everything that happened in New Orleans was happening in Louisville, was happening in Cincinnati, was happening in St. Louis. So here in Louisville, where Memphis Jug Band is obviously country blues influence. Right. Uh, in Louisville, we had jug, the only jug bands that incorporated jazz instruments and did mostly instrumentals. Hmm. Hmm, so we're talking about pre-big band style music. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Earl Hines and Johnny Dodds both recorded with the Louisville Jug Band musicians. Folks, we're getting deep here. We're getting <laughs> deep here. So now let's let's talk about how the jug bands and jug music helped these uh, liquor distributors. Okay. Well, what happened was in New Orleans, there were these street groups that were mostly kid groups mm -hmm. and they were uh, played on homemade instruments and they were called spasm bands. Mm. Uh, if you listen to the Jelly Roll M Morton interview that Alan Lomax does, right. uh, Jelly Roll Morton mentions them, says they were the worst bands he ever heard. <laughs> and because of that uh, continuum of music on the river, the spasm bands came to Louisville in the 1890s. And immediately the, li the liquor distributors saw, you know, the potential for sponsorship and advertising. So the jug, you know, is called the poor man's tuba. So, <laughs> you know, bands, uh, distilleries like Oh Granddad and what happened was that the, the the bourbon industry, they immediately saw that there was an opportunity to use these kid bands for marketing. And so they would give them jugs and put them in front of saloons and things. And then uh, because we had the Kentucky Derby in Louisville, you know, they would... Uh, uh, go up to hotels and play at parties and things like that. And, and that was another big draw of musicians, like musicians from New Orleans, Indianapolis, Cincinnati. Everybody knew they could make money at Derby time. <laughs> you know? Right. So they said Louisville was a money town. So now let's talk about the Kentucky Derby for a moment, if, if, we, if we can. Because wasn't that... Uh, a, a black event initially? It wasn't a black event. Uh, it was actually um, uh, one of the, I think it was Lewis, one of Lewis and Clark's grandsons that, that actually started it, but all the jockeys were black. Okay, it's well, the, the same thing. Were black. 
Yeah, the the jockeys until it became like a real big deal. And then, you know, the white jockeys kind of muscled them out. I mean, it's just like, you know, Don Flemons is doing his uh, cowboy songs and the the cowboy, you know, there were black cowboys. But now the imagery is all these tough white cowboys that were doing all the work, you know? Correct, correct, correct. Okay, so... I have to backtrack a minute, um, and 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 I did want to also discuss the the Black Burial site in Louisville and everything. But before we get to all that, I have to backtrack because you mentioned this couple, and 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 you mentioned it as if they are household names, which is okay. But yeah. I'm quite sure some of my audience members do not know who, who these people are. Lewis and Clark, the explorers that opened up the West, they mapped out the West and uh, they were, you know, we were founded by George Rogers Clark and, and a uh, William Clark was a, a a, a, a relative of his, which is so like all the the uh, the people, even the slave York that went with them, they were all from this area, mm. and they're the ones that mapped out the West. You know, in our downtown, we got uh, a statue of York. Mm. You know, okay. it's pointing west. Ah, okay, okay. So, it, so. They are the ones, or they're the ones who got credit. Uh, yeah, they're the ones. Uh, it was actually York who like led them, and he was supposed to get his freedom uh, in exchange for that, but that it didn't work out that way. <laughs> right, right. So now this is interesting, and forgive me for jumping around a bit, but I, I speak a lot about land speculation, the expansion of slavery, which is became known as domestic slavery, uh, along with the Georgia men and the Coffle gang. So now we're talking after immediately after the Revolutionary War, when, when they, they were taking this excursion across the Appalachians and these different places to find <laughs> land masses to to expand slavery. So when when York led um Lewis and Clark to these places, is it safe to say that was during the time of land speculation and the expansion of domestic slavery? Yeah, that's when, you know, they uh, thought manifest destiny, you know, that it was their America's mission to like own all the land, take the land from the Indian. But, you know, an interesting thing about Kentucky is that we didn't have everybody calls us the gateway to the South. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't have the big plantations and stuff like that because tobacco is labor, less labor intensive than cotton. Oh. But we have riverboat traffic. Uh, here is where, you know, you heard the to- term sold down the river. This is where they would have been sold from. You know, we had uh. we had slave pens like they have it marked. You know, so um, they would have people go to small farms and stuff uh, who didn't have uh, need. They had slaves that they had need, and they would sell them, and they would uh, put them in pens here and auction them off, or like ship them down to Louisiana. Wow. So Kentucky would be considered like a, a, a Wall Street, so to speak, like New Orleans was at one point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, like I said, the cities, the two cities were, were very connected. You did um, say that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so let me ask you this, because you also mentioned that. Uh, blacks were able to vote and that that. It, it, there were, I guess we could say, a multitude of, of free African-Americans. Are we talking uh-huh. Reconstruction? Or are we talking even before the Civil War? Even uh, not, They couldn't vote before the Civil War, but there were a lot of free blacks uh, who were leaders. There was a guy named uh, William Sprawling who was a barber. And he was one of the he was mulatto, but he's one of the richest men in the city. 
and uh, he loaned money to 33 slaves to buy their own freedom. And he was supposedly involved in the Underground Railroad. And so uh, there, I'm writing a, a, a history of Russell, which was a, a big black community here near downtown that they're um, revitalizing. And Spalding had the first uh, housing for free blacks. He, he created it as a free black neighborhood. And, you know, and that was in the 1840s. Right. So, so that's early on. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so there are all these uh, wealthy free blacks that were related. They were intermarrying with each other and they were founding churches and they were participating in the Underground Railroad and doing all these different things because we were right across from Indiana, which was a free state. Right. So 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 would that kind of. Wow, I, you know, I'm I'm not at a loss of words, but so many things is coming to my mind because I, I think of Philadelphia when you explain this to me, right? And and how uh-huh. Philadelphia has so many uh, wealthy, uh, so to speak, elite African Americans that kind of did the same thing, we, uh, like the Fortin family. We, we, is there any connection with all of these uh, free, wealthy, black, well-off blacks that? worked on an underground railroad across the country? Uh, Well, I know that there are connections between people in Louisville and Cincinnati. Okay. Uh, There's uh, the Morris family, uh, Sheldon Morris, that uh, was... um, a a wealthy and and barbers incidentally like most of them uh, tend to be barbers because that's something that was open to blacks then and uh, he married William Spaulding's sister I think and after she died he moved to Cincinnati and one of his sons came back here and was horse and he was the head of the Freeman bureaus uh, bank here in in uh, Kentucky so I haven't really looked at you know other places but I do know that like uh, and there's probably more connections than I know but um, I only have been looking at basically people in connection to the music Correct. Which we which is a perfect segue. So now we have the setup. We have how these these whiskey and bourbon companies bring these kids out and 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 start utilizing them for 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 as advertisement. And then we have this Kentucky Derby that initially started with all yeah. black jockeys. Where do we yeah. go from there? Okay, ragtime. Kentucky was on, like, played a big role in the development of ragtime. And all the jug bands referred to their songs as rags. Because, so, like, um, Ben Harney is a white man who is considered the father of ragtime. Okay. He introduced ragtime to the New York theater. Okay. He was from Louisville. And he said he invented it after watching two black banjo players at a party here in Louisville. Hmm. The other big ragtime guy was Ernest Hogan, and he was from Bowling Green, Kentucky, and he was one of the first black uh, songwriters. And, you know, ragtime is kind of mixed up with the coon songs. Correct. And Correct. I, I should go, I should go back a little bit because they think that uh, Jim Crow was invented here in Louisville. No, wait a uh, minute. I, I I thought that we were talking about the 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 gentleman who created the character. Yeah, yeah, Thomas Rice. Yes. Um, he there there's like he, on that tour he was in Louisville, Cincinnati, and Pittsburgh, and so a lot of people say that he actually saw the slave that he modeled it after in Louisville hmm. and carried it to these other cities. Is a big debate, but regardless, the minstrel show was very popular here. And so when the coon songs came along at early ragtime, that was also popular here. So. Ernest Hogan from Bowling Green, he wrote the song All Coons Look Alike. Right. <laughs> and that was the the clean version because first he said all pimps look alike. And so <laughs> you can see their mindset. And so Ben Harney, 
the white guy, he uh, goes uh, off, you know, and he, the first ragtime, we do know for sure that the first ragtime sheet music was produced here in Louisville in 1895 and it was a Ben Harney song. Now this and, is after Ernest Hogan. Uh yeah, yeah, this is after uh Hogan um uh started. They they were around. They were kind of contemporaries, but you know, the white guys always going to get the credit. Correct. I mean, yeah. basically, this is America. <laughs> you know? Yes, I so, so, so in Bowling Green, they do have like a, a, a tombstone and stuff, and they say he's the father of uh, Hogan's the father of Ragtime. But if you read any book about Ragtime, it starts out with Ben Harney. And I, so I, I Harney, understand. Yeah. And Harney played with a lot of black musicians. He, Earl Hines played with him. Earl Hines was convinced he was black passing as white. <laughs> but there's never been any proof of that. So, but he was like basically trying to imitate the black music that he heard. And so... um Louisville was a big stop in the uh, ragtime and um, minstrel show, you know, circuit. And we were part of a ragtime circuit that included Indianapolis and Chicago and all that. And so, and we also, um, there was a guy here, he was a white guy, his name is John Wellen, and he owned all the burlesque clubs, and, you know, a lot of the early blues and jazz came out of like, you know, the the burlesque and the saloons and stuff. Correct. So um, he fixed elections. He his place got raided, kept getting raided. So he decided to get into politics. He got one of his friends elected mayor and got himself um, a, a made uh, sheriff. And so for like 20, 30 years in Louisville, the sheriff ran the red light district here. Wow. (laughs) And so he uh, employed a lot of these black musicians and uh, Ben Harney had started uh, the first all black men's uh, vaudeville touring company. It was called South Before the War. That's where Billy McLean, the black minstrel came from. Right. Wait, he started it. His version, or are you saying the entire black menstrual troop? Yeah, it, it was Ben Hart. It was Ben Hart. This was uh, South Before the War was like a really popular early black minstrel. Right. And uh, Harney came up with the idea and he sold it to this welling guy. And so it traveled the country. I found like reviews and stuff all over the country that this was like one of the most popular black touring shows. Wow. Yeah. And so then, you know, one one of the the things that Welland did was he had like music because, you know, we had those Southern Moors here who are used to black entertainers entertaining white people. Okay. You know, okay. so that was not seen as, you know, unusual or, or anything. Taboo. Yeah, taboo. Are you familiar with Sir Martin, the blues singer? She was the first yes, person to sing. Okay, Sir Martin is from Louisville. She was born uh, Sarah Dunn, and she was on the uh, theater owner's booking agency, you know, the Chitlin Circuit, and it was T-O-B-A, but all the black performers said it stood for tough on black asses. <laughs> so she started out that she... Um, uh, so when when Mamie Smith came ar- around in the 20s and they had, uh, you know, Crazy Blues and started race records, Sarah Martin was always ready middle age, you know, but uh, she started making records for Ralph Peer and uh, she was the first person to record Ain't Nobody's Business If I Do. She discovered Sylvester Weaver, who was another Louisvillian who uh, was the first guy to play slide guitar on the record. And he's buried here. Okay. Yeah. So, and he and her, I think, were the first uh, blues people, like the the pair of guitar and vocals. Wow. And so she came out of this whole Baldville thing with Wellen. She was playing in the parks with him. And in the 20s, there was this 
like novel trend, like every everybody wanted a novelty record because like some label had a hit song with a ukulele orchestra. Mm. And uh, so everybody wanted a novelty record. So she being from Louisville knew about jug bands. And so she ended up taking the Louisville jug band into uh, the studio with her in New York and uh, they produced 10 sides and it was released as Sir Martin's Jug Band and that was the very first Jug Band recording. This is about 1924-25 and when it came out, Will Shade from uh, the Memphis Jug Band said that he got the idea for doing the Jug Band from here in the Louisville albums. Wow. So, and Whistler's Jug Band was the second Jug Band to record, and they were from Louisville too. So, you know, all that, the minstrel show, the, the vaudeville, the ragtime, all that kind of came together in those Jug Bands well, uh, in the 20s and 30s. And, and this predates the, the Memphis Jug Band craze. Yes, yes. Um, like I said, Will Shade um, said said that he heard the Louisville records, and that's when he thought of doing the Jug Band. But the Memphis Jug Band, you know, they they um, pro- record it more, and they're more remembered than the Louisville people. And that's one of the reasons that you know inspired me to write the book, uh, my book, Louisville Jug Music. So, okay, now let's sidestep here for a minute because you've mentioned a lot of great achievements that were birthed in Kentucky Mm -hmm. and how Kentucky could be considered a middle passage between the regions could, could, could be a factor in that. But, but why do you suspect that Kentucky is rarely mentioned when celebrating or sharing this information. I, I don't think it's just Kentucky. I think that that you know the record companies when they got a hold of it in mythology, they just simplified the story. You know, Mississippi's where the blues comes from. New Orleans is where jazz comes from. But there's all these little towns. You know, I don't think Louisville's probably that special. I'm sure there's tons of towns that had a hand in developing these genres that have been forgotten because, you know, if I hadn't dug up all this information about the Louisville uh, musicians, no one would have known about it. Mm. Now, now, Louisville, Kentucky is part of the Delta. Yes, yes. It could be. Uh, it, it's all like it, it's it's southern. It's weird because you know, like we're on that cusp. So some people think of us as the Midwest, and some people think us of us as the South. We're one of those bordered states. Okay, now be, I, I bring that up because you make mention that you know, and I like how you worded it to, to simplify it. The history of all this stuff is very convoluted and, and has so many different compartments. It's, it's almost impossible to stick all these things into one. You know, you have to focus on one thing. But so with, with all this being said, do you believe or would you think that it's shared the way it's shared because the Delta is a big place? And instead of breaking down each uh, area's contribution into compartments for its trajectory. They just they just pinpoint one section that's possibly the most popular out of or the first recognized out of this entire Delta region. Do you think that could play a part? Yeah, I think it's it's easier to research. You know, there's so much cross pollinization. You had like musicians moving back and forth that is easier to just focus on a place like the Delta and just say, oh, it's all started at Dockery Farm because Charlie Patton was there and, you know, Robert Johnson or whatever, you know. I uh, And a lot of it, you know, you it's like idol worship. Um, 
kind of thing. And I was interested, you know, uh, that country music documentary uh, is uh, come out a couple of days ago. Ken Burns did on PBS. Correct. And um, he had Whistler's Jug Band, which was one of the Louisville Jug Bands, but he didn't identify them. And uh, he mentioned that Jimmy Rogers uh, recorded with a Jug Band, and the Jug Band he recorded with was the Louisville Jug Band. So wow. you just think about that. They they recorded with Sir Martin a blues. Um, lady, they and it was like traditional string band stuff. They recorded with Johnny Dodds, who's a jazz guy, and they recorded with the king of the father of country music. Right, same well, guys. Wow, yeah, yeah, same guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, I mean that's that's beyond amazing, and that's what I'm trying to get to because all they recorded with all of these so-called legends and they all come out of Louisville. They used that musical style and the experts at this style and, and it's just like omitted. I'm I'm just I'm 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 really, really baffled because this is something that should be like front and center. This is almost amazing. So now we have jug bands. We spoke about utilizing of jug bands to sell uh, bourbon and whiskey and then how that connected into the Kentucky Derby. What? And then we also went into, which you just came full circle, how these jug bands were flown to different places to do specific genre music of the time that could be considered pop music at the time. What <laughs> follows that? Uh, well, you know, in the, uh, the jug band music ended up uh, losing its popularity in America around the Depression. And from 1930, or 1929 to 1932, Earl McDonald, the jug blower for Louisville Jug Band, he had a show here on the radio that was really popular in the South. But the, you have like the kind of the civil rights generation coming up. And, and then like the plantation... Uh, imagery. And so what ended up happening was that it went over to England. Mm. In the 50s, they had uh, a craze called skiffle music. And it was like, basically, they were getting into American folk music. Right. And the, the band, the Beatles started out as a skiffle band called the Quarrymen. Wow. Jimmy Page started out playing guitar in the skiffle band. And they were playing some of Louisville jug music stuff. Wow. And, and, and Southern, you know, they were playing Memphis jug band. They were playing, you know, this black music, but it's these white teenagers over in England. And then it came back to America in the 60s. You know, uh, Jim Queskin at our, um, the, uh, our uh, uh, festival, uh, this weekend, our headliner was Jim Queskin of the Jim Queskin Jug Band, and he introduced it to the Grateful Dead and that whole 60s crowd. And that's where a lot of that imagery comes from as the Jug Band as, as white bands, because you have to think. In the 1960s, no black man's going to want to be wearing overalls and blowing into a jug. <laughs> That's funny and true. You know, I love this because now we can actually go into the social um, context of this as well as the terrain that kind of morphed this, this switch of faces, so to speak, right? Yeah. And you said we're at the beginning of the civil rights movement, right? So maybe we can call it, because there was actually two new Negro movements, right? There's one of the 1800s and there's one of the early 1900s. So we, we can say this is around that time, right? So are we saying, are you saying this new Negro music that morphed into civil rights kind of was like, okay, our representation cannot look like that of yesterday. How big of an effect yeah. did that have on Kentucky music and, and culture and community? 
Well, I can I, I talk a lot about Earl Earl McDonald because he's kind of the focus of my book because I was able to to trace um, a lot of his life and I even talked to his family. Okay, and um, and 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 one thing in my book, I actually interviewed Dom, and uh, we talked about like people would think, oh, how could he sing? Like one of his songs, it was an Irvin Jones song. It was called "Under the Chicken Tree," and it's about how he's sleeping <laughs> and he's having this dream that chicken grows on trees, you know, <laughs> and he in, in, in a white crowd, you know, it, you know, plays into the stereotype that, you know, uh, black people love fried chicken, love chicken, but then <laughs> a, a, a white, a black crowd could see that it's comedy. You know, Dom said, uh, you know, that's the beginning because uh, he's taking their expectations and playing with it. And even in uh, he recorded in, in the jailhouse now, his version is called She's in the Graveyard Now. But Earl talks about how his brother Earl tried to vote um, or, or how his brother tried to vote. And then he voted not once, but twice. And now he's in jail in Louisville. And what Earl was saying, he was making kind of a political statement that, you know, you can't really vote. You can't really do what you want here in Louisville. But, you know, it's a comic story because they couldn't be outright uh, rebellious at that right. time. That's when, you know, the last lynching in America happened in Kentucky. You know? <laughs> right, so, right. So Earl's daughter, Maddie, who I, I knew she was a, she's a noted civil rights activist. Like she celebrated won all kinds of awards here. She never talked to, about her father until she got old. Mm. I interviewed, I'd known her many years as a, cause I started out as a reporter. Okay. Uh, so I was covering protests and all these things that she was part of. And it was actually, um, uh, this minister who worked with her, uh, I was t- he she had gotten sick and uh, and I was asking him about her and he said like you know her father was a blues musician and I said you know uh, um, what was his name and he said I don't know but he used to blow into a jug wow. so I had known Earl McDonald's daughter for years and she never once talked about it right before she died she became prouder of it and she came to our jubilee because we got uh not only he was buried in unmarked grave so we got him a gravestone and we had a historical marker placed in downtown louisville for him but her she didn't feel like that she could embrace that when she was younger because of who she was right and that and her daughter terry knows almost nothing about her grandfather. Like I'll ask her questions and she says, like, you know more about him than I do. You well, know? Let's, let's, let's unpack that for a minute because you, you said later in life, she began to appreciate. So were you able to ask her where the change was that made her appreciate that connection? Well, I think it's because she saw how influential he was because, you know, jug band music was kind of unknown in Louisville. But when once we started this festival, like we've had a band from Japan that paid their own way to come to Louisville because they wanted to play at Earl's grave. Wow. And their name was the Old Southern Jug Blowers. Uh, we get emails from people in Holland, in England, you know, uh, because the, the soldiers in World War II, they went overseas and they left their records. And so there's all these pockets. And when she saw how much love people had for his music, she could appreciate that, you know, he really did something. So now let me ask you, based on what you just said, your perspective on this, because as we know, as the generation changed, if we could say give or take two or three gener- generations in this timeline of, of the turn of the century to, uh, I guess, the, the 50s, 
there was a, there was there was a big separation between what could be considered the antebellum South and this new urban intellectual mm-hmm. black person mm-hmm. outside of the effect that you shared that her her father had musically what about in terms of the social environment the disenfranchisement and still finding a way and passing down a tradition does, does that mold into this as well well i i think that we lost the tradition we lost, you know, but and one thing about black musicians is they're always looking for it. They're looking for the next thing. You know, my friend Sulane Wilson, uh, who's also used to be in the Chocolate Drops, he says that, you know, because of the our status in America, black people always had to weave and bob, you know, <laughs> to, 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 to keep us theirs. Because, like, you know, uh, if whatever black people are doing now, white people are going to decide discover it 10 years from now and say they created it you know Uh, (laughs) and and and, here in Louisville and, and I think it's similar to other cities all over the country you know, we ended up getting like 17,000 new black residents because of the migration. And the city founders were worried about that. You know, they didn't want black people living all over. So what they did was that they, Louisville is the most segregated city in the country. Uh, oh my God. And, you know, this is a fact because what all 75% of the black people in this city live in the West End on like 5% of the county. Oh my goodness. And this was by design. They had urban renewal. So uh, along in the 40s, we had, they called uh, our Walnut Street the Harlem of the South. Wow. We, we could ravel Bill Street. There were all kinds of clubs and stuff. And so what happened is the city knocked all that down. Mm. And uh, they built the projects there over it. Wow. And uh, so and and so where the city had been, black people lived all over the city at one time. They couldn't get loans for any place to buy a house anywhere but the West End. And right now we're going through this process, which is why I'm writing a book about the Russell neighborhood. We've gotten this. $30,000, $30 million grant from HUD, and they're trying to revitalize Russell. But what they're really trying to do is take back that property (laughs) that they they gave the black people and they're moving the poor people out, but that's a totally different thing. So we're talking gentrification in Louisville. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Who's that? Soledad O'Brien has been following it. Is it's like we're a national model for this, wow. and so um, all those traditions. Like you know, I grew up in West Louisville, and I had no idea that there used to be uh, clubs all along Walnut Street, which is now renamed Muhammad Ali Boulevard. Mm. And um, then, um, you know, that there was the, or what Urban Renewal did was it, it basically sucked the economic engine out of the black community because uh, all of these black businesses were forced to move and not uh, um, all of them had the capital to move. And if they could move, they didn't have the capital to uh, stay open for uh, more than a year or two. Wow. Uh, so they they did such a, there's only like, I think one or two buildings from before Urban Renewal that are still in West Louisville. Jeez. Now, wh- when did this begin uh, this, to happen? This happened in the 60s. Uh, it was a national program. It was, it was a federal program to help blighted communities. And uh, uh, there's a video uh, online of our mayor at the time, Mayor Farnsley, saying basically that it was Negro removal. They wanted to move the black people from downtown. And and basically they were afraid that 
that concentration would give them too much power and, and the city would end up having a black mayor. Wow. And, and so that, that, you know, all those traditions, all those music traditions are gone. Because of that. Yeah, because of that. Uh, you know, so now like the West End is known for poverty and and, all you know, it's the bad section of town. But that was engineered that way. And so now the, uh, they have this Russell revitalization plan and uh, they're basically taking the land back and they're say, turning the projects into mixed income housing. And, you know, that means bringing in white people. <laughs> correct. Correct. And they're moving, you know, they're moving uh, the residents to different parts of the city, which is why I'm writing a book about uh, what's happening in Russell, its history and what's happening now. Well, you know, that that's happened. It's been, that's been happening and it's continuing to happen here in New York. It, it started in, in Harlem and Brooklyn. It's moving all around. Um, when this was put in effect in the 60s, it's ironic that we see a couple of things happen. We see the blues revival that was a, a, a all white um, academic movement. Then we also see the British invasion, which is the music industry of America and Europe repackaging and selling back to white people, black culture. All this is happening at the time you're telling me that this, this federal project happened that destroyed our traditions, correct? Yes. Yes. And you get into that whole thing of authenticity, you know, is it authentic, uh, blues and, and that's kind of like a trap to keep black musicians from innovating you know <laughs> I, I feel like well no no I, I'm because you, you touch on something that John Wesley worked the third was a big proponent of actually that was one of the um rifts he had with the Lomaxes was the fact that and, and I'm not by no means bashing the Lomaxes but I am a Wesley uh, a John Wesley work and uh, the work family fan for that matter for everything they've done. But he was, John Wesley worked the third was said, he set out to track the progression of black music. Whereas a lot of white folklorists and ethnomusicologists in a nostalgic sort of way, wanted to uh, 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 pigeonhole to a, a more primitive moment. You know, mm -hmm. it may be an unfair assessment, but that is how it's portrayed. Uh, but it sounds as if, well, I don't want to say it sounds. Let me ask you, are you on the Wesley work camp? Are you in the Wesley work camp as in tracking the progression or you just understand the progression, but you, you kind of go back and forth to, to preserve the history as a whole? Well, I, 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 uh, I guess I am on the work side because I believe like what in each generation of black people do is that uh, black musicians, as they look, use the past as a foundation but they innovate on it and put their own spin on it to answer their own problems and, you know, worldview, what's going on with them. And uh, I don't think that, you know, we should be stuck, like, saying how close is it to this original, you know? And you can see it in food and all kinds of uh, culture, the cultural things that um, white peoples end up, you know, latching on to. So out of all your findings, what was the most influential and, and exciting thing that you discovered? Um, wow. <laughs> um, you know, actually, I recently made the discovery that, um, you know, I said Earl McDonald was uh, uh, had a radio show and he had a gospel quintet that uh, was on the show and they were called the Ballard Chefs because they were sponsored by Ballard and Ballard Flower Company. And the um, the gospel quintet were four brothers and they were named Smalley. And they had the older brother who was uh, named John Smalley who um, 
was a, a famous evangelist at the time. And he, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Gospel Pearls, which is like a seminal hymnal that came out in 1921. It was published by the National Baptist Convention. And it turned out he was one of the people with John Work who worked on that book. Wow. And so it's just like every time I look, you know, I scratch, I find out some other musician from Louisville had a hand in some kind of incredible thing. And so uh, the I even um, uh, have gone to Hill Street Baptist Church, which is the church that was founded by the family. And they had all the photos, all the records going back to 1895. Wow. So I'm just working my way through that uh so there's five so far five gospel uh singers that i know of out of this family one of them nationally known and two of the brothers got kicked out of the church because they played ragtime wow <laughs> so so wow. it's like every time i think i got the story pinned down like some new <laughs> thing opens up for me Right. I definitely understand that. And I, I can appreciate that because I have similar experiences. I want to uh, wrap by discussing your weekend. Well, two things, your weekend festival and your curation. Uh, tell us about the festival, how it started, and then go right into that uh, curation project. Okay, well, um, this is the 15th anniversary of the National Jug Band Jubilee, and it was started by a guy named Rod Wentz that was uh, advertising executive here in Louisville. When he retired, he became obsessed with uh, old blues and jazz, and he was in... Uh, Alabama at a uh, folk festival and he heard this band called the Juggernaut Jug Band and he had never heard jug band music before and he asked them you know where are you from and they said Louisville and you know he was like me when I found that CD and so he ended up founding this festival and after my article uh, came out that crazy jug band sound he invited me to be on the board so we get every September, we get musicians from all over the country and sometime in the world. Like I said, we've had people from Japan and, and two bands from Canada uh, so far. And uh, it's an all day free festival. Uh, family friendly and at four o'clock we stop the music and do workshops and teach people to play saw mm. and blow jug and do you know different skills and because of this festival and the um uh, the music, uh, the, my book, Louisville Jug, Jug Music, uh, the Fraser History Mu uh, Museum here in Louisville, uh, last year they asked me if I would be interested in curating a show on Kentucky music. So the... Um, um, the, the exhibit is not just black artists, it's all music, all genres, but people just, you know, they think of Kentucky, they think bluegrass. Right. Yeah. But we have so many people, uh, from every genre, you know, like I, I talked about Ben Harney and, um, the, um, uh, ragtime. We have a lot of the early, um, a lot of early rock uh, bands uh, came through here. Right now, indie rock was a big thing in Louisville in the 90s. There's a band called Slint that's known worldwide, and they were from Louisville. And, you know, this it, it kind of celebrates, it, it's, like I said, it's all Kentucky music, but Louisville has just been a crazy music town. And, and uh, the first part of it is I call community and memory, where I look at what people brought to the state with them. Mm. You know, the British and, and uh, Scotch-Irish fiddle music, the Germans, the French, the African uh, influence that came here and all. And then I, I try and show how it unfolded and right. came together. 
uh, uh, to to the present day because Bryson Tiller's from Louisville. You know, <laughs> do you know wow. that? <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Bryson Tiller, uh, Static Major, who did Lollipop for Lil Wayne. Wow. Uh, Nappy Roots. It's all all the River City. Wow. This is this is a remarkable Kentucky has a remarkable musical history. This is I mean it's amazing. It's amazing. And then I want to thank you for taking the time to to share a, a, a pretty much a smidget of all of these things so we had to confine this into about an hour or so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my exhibit's going to be up for a year, so if anybody's traveling the best time to come here is for Derby. I went to, you know, we, it's like Mardi Gras where they stretch it out. It's a two minute race that we stretch out to a month of celebration. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, geez. So that's, that's and more Derby than weekend. Gras. Yeah. Derby weekend, the bars don't have to close. Mm. So and we, and bars closer. Yeah. And bars close here anyway at 4 a.m. I, I went to Memphis and I was I was surprised that that you know the bars were closing at like one or two and yeah I was like I'm from Kentucky you know but <laughs> when you think of us we're all about sin you know <laughs> we got the horse racing the bourbon <laughs> tobacco <laughs> Man, that, that, that's a downright country blues song right there <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, where can people find you, your books, any information necessary? Okay, my book is on Amazon. And um, the uh, best way to reach me probably is through the uh, uh, Jubilee uh, website is uh, uh, jugbandjubilee.com. All right. Uh, do you have uh, any Twitter handles or anything? Uh, yeah, it's blueshound 2000 so everything I do, even my email is bluesound2000 at gmail.com. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I really want to thank you for spending time with Jack Dopper Blues, giving us this wonderful history. All right. Thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs>